0: From MZ Studios in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to the Tennis Revolution Podcast.
1: We are back. The Tennis Revolution Podcast. I'm all by myself again. Coach likes to leave me in a lurch. We have one of the biggest tennis days in history, and he's not here, but I'm going to do my best to fill his shoes, as I always do. Thank you guys for tuning in. We really had one of the best weeks of uh, tennis, especially from the male perspective, than we had in a long time. Uh, just finished watching the men's final a few hours ago. We, as you guys know, we always record on Sundays. And I know we don't normally sit and go through results like uh, like we're just reading them off the newspaper, but. I really thought I was going to be coming in today and talking about one of the most amazing second weeks of a slam we've ever had. And I still think it was amazing. The finals of the men's and the women's both kind of uh, made the tournament lose a little bit of its luster, but but I'm not going to let that uh, discourage me for the direction we're going the rest of the year. And I really think, based on how it turned out, we have a lot more to look forward to for the rest of the year. It was um, It was nice to see some of these people come back and... It took Djokovic a long time to get back to that level and he finally made it there and Serena's obviously still on her way back, but for her to make it back near to the finals, her first completed slam where she didn't quit with injury, and for Djokovic to make it back, which is really um only his second slam back, it was um pretty impressive how quickly they made that return. And I feel like whenever somebody's missing, we always feel like it's gonna they're never gonna be back and I was guilty of that with both of them and, and now they're both in uh in the finals of the slam, so Pretty exciting stuff, but I'm going to start with the men's quarterfinals because that was really when this tournament kind of took a whole new direction. And so we had, in the, and this is the men's side, we had eight players. And between all eight, we had seven out of eight that were Grand Slam finalists previously. So, I mean, that's pretty much as good as you can get because there were probably only, you know, nine or ten Grand Slam finalists in the whole tournament. So you didn't have that many. Chilich and uh and, uh, who am I forgetting? Oh, Chilich and team were the two that didn't make it that far, but I can't think of many others. I mean, he had some that made some slam finals long ago, but I mean, of the, all the recent players that are factors, you pretty much had everybody there. And then the, this eighth person, of course, was Isner, who's now can say he's a Grand Slam semifinalist. But just by going through these results here, of course, the the one that made the biggest headlines that day was Federer and Anderson, which, uh, you know, Federer blew two sets of love lead, which doesn't ever happen. And he, and he ended up losing 13-11 in the fifth. And the thing about what that was, you didn't hear anything that day. At least I didn't about you know why didn't they play a tiebreak at six all? It was you know this was so dramatic and it was a ruined match. So I think I'm going to get more into that later. But I think the you know, we heard a lot of an outcry about people saying that they shouldn't play past six all. Well, I think that's they're only saying that because the quality of tennis was not that high. I think in Federer Anderson it was dramatic. It was amazing tennis. We um, we didn't know what was going to happen. It was really. Back and forth, and it was actually you know a mixture of everything. It was net play, it was serves, it was you know ground strokes, just all around. Uh, you know break points, back and forth. So it was, it was just a good match. I think I don't think the length of the match determines whether it's good or not. Isner and Anderson could have they could have played one super tiebreaker, and it was wasn't going to be good. It's just the it's not going to be a good match regardless of what the format is. So I think some matches are good and some matches aren't. And but on the other hand, you know the reason that match will be considered good in retrospect. I mean, I consider it a good match is because that the fact that it went to 26, 24, no one would have cared if, you know, Anderson won seven, six in the fifth and he won eight, six in the tie break. Uh, the only mistake I think they made, you know, in that regard was not going to, uh, not putting it all in joke of John earlier on a different court, you know, and while those guys are finishing, let them start on a different court and move courts, they act like moving courts is, is a you know cataclysmic event. I mean, we, I think we've all played matches where we had to move courts, you know, or for whatever reason or another, I mean, it's not, I think they would have rather moved courts than have to play, you know, three hours, two days in a row, but maybe they gave them the option. They didn't want to do it. I don't know. I don't know that I wasn't there, but I would think if they had the opportunity to play on a different court, they would have taken it and ESPN would have loved it obviously because they would have had, uh, you know, two courts to choose from and they could have gone back and forth instead of people having to search, you know, and wake up at, you know, 5 a.m. the next day and try to figure out when it's on. It wasn't listed on the guy and everything. But as usual, I'm getting ahead of myself. The So we had Anderson beat Federer, 13 11. Then we had Rounich and Isner, which I have to admit I didn't see hardly any of because I was so kind of worn out from watching uh, Nadal Del Potro and Anderson Federer. But, you know, Isner has a dominant record against Rounich for whatever reason, which I wouldn't think that kind of player would be a, the player he would dominate because he normally. Has a, plays a big server and he can't break him because um, and so then it's just tie breaks which it was two of the sets were tie breaks but I thought Raonic would have a little bit more off the ground than uh, he did both tie breaks were by two points they split and then Isner won four and three the third and four sets which when do you ever see that happen so that put those guys in the semis as we all know from that marathon and then Djokovic kind of uh, rolled over Nishikori pretty meekly and I think Nishikori's kind of the player that hasn't hasn't ascended as quickly as some of these other guys making a comeback, you know, he's been back now since February, you're talking about almost six months and you're, you've seen progress. He's up to, you know, almost 20 in the world, but it's just not the amount of progress that I think he would have liked him. And he and Walrinker are the kind of the two that have kind of stalled and you know, the theories might be, they came back, they didn't came back, they come back too quick. They, you know, I'm not, they, uh they will never be back, you know, who knows? But I think uh, a lot of us do a style of play also, but yeah, they just so far, they haven't, proven that they can get back to that level. I don't want to doubt anybody after this tournament, but but it definitely... And, and they both showed flashes. They, beat, they both beat good players, but but they still have a long way to go. And then you had Del Potro and Nadal, which was just another incredible match. Went to five sets. Del Potro impresses me as, he, impress me as he always does, because he, he just took Nadal all the way to the limit, and he looked exhausted. And in the midst of looking exhausted, he hit a 107-mile mile forehand in the fifth set. So it's just the fact that he can still produce those shots regardless of his uh you know his endurance level or you know fitness level or, or whatever. It was it was incredible. And so, you yeah, know, you had those two five setters in one day that really really set the tournament going. And, you know, it led us into the semis, which I mean, it really made the semis I, I've never seen two matches in a tournament where they were both that evenly matched. I mean you had Isner and Anderson and the, the odds were almost identical. Well, they were both identical when the tournament at that point, it was seven to one cause I happened to look it up. So they were both seven to one. You could have bet, you could have bet, you know, hundred bucks to win 700 on either of them, which obviously wouldn't have been a good bet. And we all knew that at the time, but then you also had Nadal and, and Djokovic and I, I looked at a bunch of different websites and they were all like 50, 50, 49, 51. It was, you know, 10, nine, they were all so close. And I think that, you know, that in itself is what we're always looking for. I don't, I don't want to see and by the way if Isner and Nadal had been in the finals it would have been way more interesting. Um Nadal and Anderson obviously nobody want to see that we just saw that the US Open and it wasn't good. Uh Djokovic Isner that would have been maybe, you know, interesting but but it, this is, based on how Anderson looked in the final Isner would not have looked any better. But I think that just because Isner did all, Nadal Isner has beaten him before, you know, in uh or played him really close before in slams and he's got this that serve that he can be exhausted and still hit aces. I think that would have thrown is thrown it all off his rhythm, which is the whole his whole game is his rhythm, and so that to me would have been of the four possible matchups. I thought that was the most interesting, and then we would have had American in the final too for you know, selfish reasons. That would have been cool, but but that was what I would hope what I was hoping for going into the finals, and we got you know the two other players. And I think, you know, Anderson or, I mean, uh, Djokovic or Nadal would have handled Anderson similarly. I just think, you know, he had nerves and fatigue and stiffness, and and so it took him a couple sets to get out of that, and then, then it was an interesting match, but, but I don't think there was any really way that Anderson's winning that. It's just not, he doesn't have, he has a big serve, but not a big enough serve to mess Djokovic up, and then he doesn't have a break, you know, game on Djokovic, so that was the problem. You're you're not going to stop Djokovic from breaking you at least a couple times. And, and I think he broke him four times, so at least. So, you know, that he's not going to be able to make up four breaks. But anyway, yeah, the big match that everybody was talking about, and again, nobody would have talked about it if it was 7-6 in the 5th, but it was Anderson-Isner. Yeah, they had three tie breaks to start, and the crowd was restless. You could see a lot of empty, empty seats. And because the uh, the Nadal match was after that, for those that didn't see, so they were waiting for that to finish. But what irritates me is, you know, you're, you're playing two five-set matches consecutively. Why do they have to start at 1 o'clock? I mean, why can't you start at 10 or 11? I mean, you know you're going to have two matches, and even if they're straight sets, they're still going to be probably a minimum of two, two and a half hours. And that, if both were straight sets, it would be five hours. When you start at 11 and you're done at four, I mean, that's still, you still got, you know, the people there for five hours. So I don't get the one o'clock start. I mean, you're really, even if you have two, let's say they had a fifth set tie break, even if you had two, five setters that went to six all on the fifth, I mean, that could easily be five hours each, and that's 11 p.m., which is their, absolute end they have to stop don't get me started on that but so th- so you're just really pushing the limit when you start that late um and i don't understand you know what their reasoning behind that is It's probably I'm sure it's related to attendance and tv ratings or whatever but i mean i think on a, an event like that you're going to sell out regardless of what time it is but yeah i just think it you know it i think and i'm sure in europe it drove eyeballs away from the tournament because it was so late and then you didn't finish the match which to me was Ridiculous. Uh, what I always look at, and coach, we'll, we'll debate this hopefully next week. But to me, your number one goal as a tournament director, I don't care if it's soccer or, you know, tennis or baseball or, you know, eight year old gymnastics, whatever it is, is fairness. That's what you're always shooting for is a fairness. And to me, when you have one match that finished on Saturday, I mean, I'm sorry, on Friday, and then another match that had to go into Saturday, that's not acceptable to me. There's got to be some you know, act some things in place that that match is going to finish on Saturday, regardless. They got to get some agreement with the neighborhood or the, the city. I mean, it's a Friday night. They can't have an indoor tennis match on a Friday night in a neighborhood. I mean, it's, how loud can that be? And, uh, and so that I just thought was ridiculous. If you have rain or whatever, you know, that I understand. But but it just wasn't, to me, that wasn't acceptable to have those guys. And again, you had options. You could have put Federer, I could have put Nadal and Djokovic on court one and said, hey guys, we're going to start you on court one. We're going to play a set. If they're still going after a set, we're going to play two sets. If they're still going you know, and that's it. Now, if they both didn't agree to that and they knew they had to be done at 11 and, you know, they decided to start at eight o'clock knowing they had to be done at 11, that's on them. And then the, then, if they chose that, then that's, that's fine. But to me, you can't have that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of inequity. I think they've got to, they got to do something about that for future. I hate the way the French does it where they play both semis at the same time, but at least you can say that it's fair, which, like I said, is always the baseline. So, anyway, you had Anderson and Isner go to 26-24 in the fifth. You had, I thought, you know, there was some interesting, it was much more, much better than Isner Mahout. So, for those that compare it to Isner Mahout, I mean, whoever, you don't remember how bad that was. That was just 40 love. I would probably say 75% of the games were 40 love. At least fifty percent. And so it wasn't even you didn't even have a hint of drama. You know, in Isner the last I think they said six games he served in that set he was down left thirty. I mean so to me there was drama every game and I think that that was what made it different. And it was amazing that he'd be down left thirty and could hit you know, throw off two aces. You know, I'm not saying the tennis itself was exciting, but it made it it made it interesting and it made you not be able to turn it off because you didn't know when it was gonna end and you and you wanna see who wins. I don't care who you are, when you're watching an event you want to watch till the end. And so to me, that kept people watching for two, three hours longer than they would have ever watched Isner and Anderson. And and it kept people on the hook for those that, I mean, the advantage of waiting to start Joke dolls it kept people on the hook that wanted to see that. You know, they had to wait and and have that one finish before they could go out. So I'm in favor. I don't know, Coach will debate me next week about fifth set tie breaks, and, but I think there's two fundamental things that, that fifth set tie breaks do. And number one is, it's, a, it's an endurance sport, which we talk about that all the time on this podcast, but it's an endurance sport, and I don't like things that take the endurance element away or reduce it. And again, it's, you know, I get that five sets is going to be endurance regardless, but I think there needs to be an advantage to being in better shape than your opponent. And we obviously saw that advantage in this match. So that's number one. And again, I think, you know, nine all, if they want to do it, I'm not opposed to it, but I, I know how that stuff goes and they start doing it at 12 all and then they'll send us nine all and then let's do it at six all. And the, I mean, right now in volleyball, you play four sets to 25 and then the fifth set, you play to 15. So The fifth set's short in every other set, which makes no sense to me. Uh, and, and the second element for me is that I like to have a match. I like to have an opponent have to break the other person to win. If you can't break the other person, you don't deserve to win. And that's how I feel about it. And if you're out there seventy sixty eight or twenty six twenty four, that was your fault because you couldn't break them. So that's my thing. You know, I'm not gonna. I would have been very dissatisfied if that was fifth set tie break and Isner, you know, at six five with Anderson serving, hits return that clips the net and goes over, or hits a frame return that was you know, I think they need you need to be able to earn a return game and win, and then and then, and that's what happens. So I do think. If we ever reached a point where it was happening, you know, ten, twelve, fifteen times every tournament, then we might look at other options. Uh, Coach didn't like this option, but I said maybe you play no ad in the fifth, you play or no ad after you get to six all, or, or you know whatever. I think there's other there's other ways you can do it that that make it a little more interesting. And, you know, it's easy, of course. Isner and Anderson are going to say they want a tie break because they you know they both are exhausted, but at the same time. If they played a tie break and lost, you know, they would have been just to me as equally upset as they were in this, in this method. So there's nobody to blame but themselves when you can't break the other person. That's just, that's the way I feel about that. I think you've got to break them to win. And if the, the downside I saw, let's say we play fifth set tie break and let's imagine in 10 years, we've got John Isner jr. You know, 15 years and he's got 165 mile an hour serve. I mean, he can win every single point in a serve, never get broken. And then all he has to do to win a match is win three tie breaks. I don't think, which I mean, I guess that he could win the first three sets and that'd be it. But what I mean is I think you should have to prove, you know, similar to how they do it in college football, you have to prove that you can score and you can stop the other team. You can't just score every time and win. You've got to score and stop the other team in overtime. So I think that's what, you know, that's what tennis is. You have to hold your serve and you have to break them once. And that's all you have to do in college football. You you stop them once. You stop them one time and you score, you're done. Game over. So I mean, if you can't break somebody one time in the course of 50 games, then you don't deserve to win. But you know, it's it's all a prog- you know, progression. We'll see what happens. But you didn't hear anybody after. Again, you didn't hear anybody in Federer anderson You didn't hear anybody on Djokovic at all say they should have played a tiebreak at six-all. And and how did Djokovic look in the finals? He looked just exhausted, didn't he? Not at all. You couldn't tell he played five sets. So it's again, it's an endurance sport. Joe at all. That was an incredible match. I did not like the fact that they played indoors for the second day, but you know they always like to. And the only reason I didn't like that, by the way, I understand the continuity and all that. But again, fairness number one. The other two guys had to play outdoors. You played indoors. Uh, you know, I don't think it was that hot, but still, I think it should be equal conditions. And number two, the they always boast about it's an outdoor tournament. Out, they say that every outdoor tournament, outdoor tournament. You know, and then second day playing it. You know, 11, 12 o'clock, they closed the roof. So I just don't like that inconsistency. It's, it's, if you want to play the whole tournament indoors, I have no problem with that. But, you know, just be consistent. That's, that's the issue I have. And so Djokovic and it all, that was incredible tennis. You know, they got to, got through three sets the first night. You know, some people said, why did they even start the match when they knew they couldn't finish? I, I get that argument too. Um, the only problem with that not, not starting is that then you'd have to push the final to Monday. Um, again, you could have fixed that by, by playing, starting them on court one. I think that resolves a lot of the problems. You start them on court one and they come back and play whatever they need to on center court. And again, they might've had a match on court one that night. I don't, I don't know, but typically by that time, you know, they're, they're winding down. I I still, I, I wish they give them the option and they might've rather played on court 18, you know, than than wait for who knows how long. And I get once it's in the fifth set past six, all you assume it's going to end at any moment. You don't ever expect it to be 26, 24 but even when they got to six all in the fifth, you knew that the way Djokovic and Nadal play, it was going to be a struggle to finish on time. So, so to me, that was that was another issue. But yeah, Djokovic, uh, you know, that was the closest he has looked to himself since you know he's been back, and he just you know we've never really talked about this because they haven't played in a while. But to me, it's it's that Djokovic backhand that just just neutralizes Nadal. He doesn't know, you know, he can move his backhand any direction, and Nadal doesn't, you know, he doesn't do as well taking his forehand to other guys' uh, forehands. He's not used to doing that. So Nadal serves automatically go to the backhand, you know, I would say 60%, 70% of the time. So Djokovic has that. He's kind of neutralized the point right after the serve. And then during the rally, Nadal just loves that, you know, forehand to backhand. That's the shot he's killed Federer with, you know, for for 15 years, it's that cross-court, his cross-court forehand to the other guy's backhand, and he's beaten so many players with that, and against Djokovic, I don't think, I'd like to see the numbers on, you know, on how that stacks up, you know, winners versus errors, and just, you know, just, I would say when he hits that first ball, cross-court to Djokovic's forehand, to backhand, you know, how many of those points does he win, but, but yeah, it's just something about that matchup, he, <coughs> excuse me, he, um, you know, he, 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 he dominates that matchup, and, and against, I say dominates, it might be 55%, 45%, but it's just, I don't think Djokovic has that fear. He doesn't have to worry so much about, oh, you know, I got to keep it away from Nadal's forehands. He's going to kill my backhand. He doesn't have to worry about that. And he, and he has enough penetrating enough shot where he does keep it away from the forehand more too. So, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be frustrating for Nadal. And I'm sure that when he plays him, he, he has to think about what to do and, and have a different strategy than he does when he plays almost any other player. And and I think that, you know, that wears them. And also the fact that Djokovic is one of the few, I mean, maybe the only guy that can that can outlast him in terms of endurance and, and out, you know, and be the same mobility as him. So I think you've got those two factors that, I mean, jo, uh, Nadal's got way more endurance than Federer. And no offense to the amazing greatest player of all time, Federer, but he's got more endurance. He's got more consistency off the baseline. And I don't know that you can say that about either of those two things against Djokovic so it's always a tough matchup and that's why i think they're either tied 26-26 or 27-25 i think it was 26-25 going into that match which is also amazing the fact that they've played that many times and i don't see why they couldn't play 10 more times but anyway all that led us to the finals which was uh again kind of lackluster and it, it it wasn't even that it was lackluster in the in the names because you know anderson you think he just made the finals of uh of the uh, U.S. Open, so I mean he's obviously one of the best fast court players in the world, but I think it was just the fact that he played so much tennis you kind of knew that that he had no chance and 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 just for the record if I think if you reverse their time on court if you put Djokovic at 21 hours and Anderson at 16 hours, I don't think it changes that much I just don't think I think it's a, number one, it's a terrible style matchup for Anderson as it was against Nadal, the same exact problems you know, great returner good enough server where Anderson's not gonna break very often if at all and it's just you know it's just a bad it was bad for that regard and then then you give Djokovic an endurance edge which he already has originally I think it just there was really no he would have just had to serve bombs all the way through to even to even have a chance and and then he started out shaky and it was just downhill I, I think it I was impressed I was happy with him they came back in the third and made it interesting and if he wins that set you know who knows you, there's always some you know tightness involved in slams and and then maybe Djokovic does start feeling the effects, but but I just don't ever can't ever imagine a time where he's down two sets to love after having that much time on court and he can battle back um, and win it. And, you know, so Djokovic was very gracious after. I think he's getting better. You know, is not here to uh, to to just uh, rave all over him and fall all over him like she did a few weeks ago, but but yeah, I think that he, he's getting better at the, you know, the post-match, the interviews, the, the, you know, the he had a really nice moment after the match where he said, you know, his motivation was he had his someone yelling out daddy, you know, when he was playing and that was really exciting. But I just think it's his persona during matches is not ingratiating. And when you, when you are like that, it just, it makes people, I, I found every match I watched him, I was rooting for the other team or the other player. And it's just, and I'm not a fan of Anderson necessarily. I'm not a fan of Nadal necessarily. You know, I'm not a fan of, uh, Nishikori, but it was just like when he loses, he's negative, And when he wins, he's negative and Murray's the same way, but it's and but even when he's positive, it's sort of like a, in your face positive. It's, you know, it's just an angry positive. So it's, it's, it's frustrating. And I, uh you know, I see that and it, it makes me want to root for the other guy. And so I, I think, yes, he did come in in a horrible era with Federn at all. And I think, uh, you know, sorry, we're having audio difficulties here, but yeah, he came in in a terrible era with and at all. And, and yes, that did make it harder for him to develop a fan base, but you know, I think part of that is self inflicted, but, uh, but yeah, it ended up being great men's tournament. Uh, I was happy with how they, uh, you know, with how it turned out. I again you always wanted to just build and build to the finals and that didn't happen in this instance, but but I think it was because of the, you know, the absolute battles we had in the in the quarters and semis. And and I think that was you know, that led to that. And then Djokovic, you know, by the way, it's it's twenty, you know, seventeen, thirteen in the Grand Slam count, which is what we always, you know, factor in more. And now that Djokovic has proven he's back on track, I don't think it's out of the question to say he can win four, you know, four or five more. I don't see any reason why he can't because we've proven over the last couple of years that it's most important who the freshest player is, you know, and, and and he's still much fresher than Federer at all, and will be for you know the next six months unless they decide to take some time off. And so I, you know, I don't, I would think you would almost have to call him the favorite in the U.S. I mean, it, probably either him or Federer, and we'll see how Federer looks, you know, and how much tennis he plays in the in the in the summer, but. But yeah, that's going to make that uh, that discussion even more interesting because he has a winning record over both those guys. And and I don't see any of the reason why that would change. You know, as their careers, well. I mean, they're much farther along in their careers than he is. But I think, you know, it's the fact that he has a winning record of both that has to factor in. And especially if he gets up to that 16, 17, 18, you know, and they, those two guys don't win anymore, maybe win one or two more between them. It'll be really crazy if I I told somebody the other day, what could you imagine if it ends up twenty twenty twenty? And of course coach would hate it because then we'd have the three greatest players in history all playing in the same era uh, is what everybody would say. But, but yeah, it's, um, it has definitely made that conversation more interesting and you never want to make, you know, a big deal out of one slam, but, but I just think the direction he's going, it could very easily, uh, it could very easily be a talking point. And of course, now before we uh, take a break, I want to touch on the women's draw. You know, we had a, a, a you know last week we focused on the women's draw because the women's draw was a complete complete chaos, and and all the top ten seeds lost. And it was funny we had the complete opposite. The second week, I mean, we had the eleven seed, twelve seed, thirteen seed. You know, they all made the semis, so they were the three best best-seeded players left. You know, Ostapenko, Kerber, and Gerges. And then you had Serena. So, I mean, you had really in the semis, if you were to play it, you know, by odds, those would be the four you would pick based on ranking. I mean, there's probably someone, you know, Serena beat that was better ranked maybe in the quarters, but although she beat Georgie in the quarters. So, you know, that was going to be, so she was the favorite in that by ranking and then she beat Rodina in the round of 16. So she was favored in that by ranking. So there's really, you know, like I said, the semifinals played out exactly like you would think. And the problem was that just wasn't, the two matches weren't compelling. You had two straight set wins you know, for Kerber and Serena, and then they went in the finals, which was a really interesting matchup to me. It was a test of when, uh, of when you know how Kerber was going to do against her, and how Serena was going to do against a really quality opponent. and And I think that uh, you know, that it it finally caught up to Serena that she had to play that she had to play somebody that was just going to make her hit a ton of balls, and and so that was. Again, it was kind of a lackluster final. We had uh, we had the you know the interest level of Serena coming back, and I think it's better for tennis that she doesn't just come back and destroy everybody the first time. You know, like I said, first time back playing a full tournament. I think it it devalues the women's game when she can just come back and dominate. So I'm I'm happy for that, and it makes that you know storyline of the quest for her to come back and win another one and to catch Margaret Court and all that you know last for three more months. And and so I think that will hopefully build. And really, I see the Open as one of the most exciting Slams we've had in a long time with with Serena and Sharapova back and all these men coming back and Murray should be back too, even though he shouldn't, he probably won't get back to that form that quickly. But I think that will be what the, uh, what we'll have to talk about the next three months. So I'm really excited and I feel like we get negative on this podcast a lot. So, uh, anyway, thank you guys for listening. I am going to pass it off to coach who has another interview with Taylor Dent and he will talk about what direction we're going in pro tennis and, and uh, where we'll go from there. So thanks for joining the revolution. We'll see you guys after the break.
0: It's time to join the revolution. Go to our website, tennisrevolutionpodcast.com to get the latest episodes. Email us your
1: questions and comments or give us show ideas.
2: We've got a, a special guest. I, this may be our first returning guest. I don't know if he was drinking a lot the first time, didn't remember. I don't know, but he's back. So our first ever return guest, the one, the only, former 21 in the world, and most importantly,
0: son of Phil Dent, Taylor Dent. You get that a lot. Does that make you mad? I apologize if it makes you mad. I don't. It de- definitely doesn't make me mad. I mean, it just humbles me more than anything else. I mean, I appreciate being back. Uh, But I think what dad gets more than anything else is he gets the father of Taylor Dent, which is not quite correct, but that's just reality. who? No offense, sir. Come on now. You know, it's just, what have you done for me lately? So I guess I was playing on tour more recently than he was. It just has everything to do with that. It's not who was the better player because there's no uh, debating that.
2: Fair enough. Now, obviously... I'm joking a little when I say it doesn't bother you because you must have a good relationship because you guys work together. Is that correct?
0: That is true. You know, we uh we Down started in the coal mines? Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Dent we... Tennis Academy, right? That's right. No, we started the academy when I retired from tennis. Uh, you know, w- when you're a professional tennis player, you you have a few options of what to do. And, uh, you know, going on the road for another 30, 35 weeks a year is one. Or opening up an academy is another option. And, you know, my wife and I really trying to, uh, you know, be as, I don't know, as, as supportive as we can for our kids. So I, we, we opened anyway, we opened up an academy and I asked dad to be a part of it. So we ha- obviously have a great relationship. He was a part of it. And, uh, that was in California. We were there for a while and, uh, we, we did really well, you know, we, we grew and, and we kind of just took a step back and said, well, what's the next step. And the next step was to kind of build and, and do our own thing and have our own club. And, uh, that's what brought us to Texas. Well,
2: let me tell you something. Uh, Saying that you wanted to take the next step forward and saying you came to Texas is going to make a lot of Texans very
0: happy. There you go. They're very
2: proud of their country
0: here (laughs) and their state. Well, Uh, I am from Orange County, as we talked about earlier.
2: Yeah. Um, Texas is a good place for tennis. And let me tell you something. It's probably a lot closer to the weather your dad trained in as a youth than what you trained in in beautiful, sunny California. I mean, it's brutal in the summers.
0: That's true. You know, uh, when we first came out here and we were showing Dad the land, he's he actually he it reminded him a lot of growing up in Australia and in the heat. He loves it. He loves the heat out here, um, much more so than than California. You know, California gets hot, um, but the air comes in off the desert and it's really really dry. Here you actually get a sweat going, and he enjoys it. What he does not enjoy so much is the. Uh, Forty degree, thirty five degree, thirty degree uh, winters. He struggles with that a little bit.
2: Don't get cold in the old outback there much, huh?
0: I will not where he <laughs> was from. Apparently,
2: it's uh the upside is it's short. Winter's short. You get ice storms, but then they're gone, and you're all, you're back outside on court in mid February. It's wonderful.
0: That's true. That's true. And, and you know we have some indoor courts uh, that we're building for him, so he he'll be uh, okay inside.
2: Well, if um if The weather is any indication Then, obviously training and that stuff served him well. I mean, any adversity somebody overcomes is good. Would you put weather in that same category for your guys? 100%. For your kids?
0: 100%. I mean, learning how to deal with adversity, learning how to deal with anything that's uncomfortable just teaches you how to be tough and overcome. And I think it just develops this uh, resolve and this character that no matter what you're faced with, you're tough enough, you know, th- that, that situation is not going to beat you. So I don't really care what the adversity is. The The more, the better, um, as, as long as you're still able to play and, and compete and spend time on the court, um, you know, learning how to avoid adversity, I think is a recipe for disaster.
2: Right, right. Well, I, uh, I'm going to utter a phrase that may have some negative connotations these days, but my guess is certainly for your dad and then maybe for you, it doesn't and that's old school. So I was at uh, the U.S. Open, uh, 2017 U.S. Open, uh, part of a coaching program, and Yvonne Lendl is working with some of the U.S. juniors over there, and he came in and spoke to our group, which was really cool, and it was different than any of the other coaches that were there that came and spoke to the group, and a lot of it was no nonsense, no BS, and he was just telling it, hey, these kids have to get used to old school. Or he said, I guess I'm old school. And, you know, did you come up under your dad, old school, what you would characterize
0: as old school? I mean, it depends what you're talking about, you know, the the subject matter. But I think the work ethic and the toughness and just the get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Then absolutely. And I think that applies to any anything, whether it's tennis or whether it's just success in any fashion. The you know, I I always I, I tell my my kids this at the academy that that improvement, which is what we're talking about, let's just keep improving is really just three things it's time invested it's the intensity of that time invested and it's the efficiency of that time invested and that's just old school stuff you know you go out there you work hard you work a long time and you do the things you're supposed to do even though it's boring who cares you know this is more than a hobby at this stage you know if we're talking about trying to be great at something it's more than a hobby it's more than for fun if you want it to be for fun then fine Go work on drop shots. Go work on 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 on, on tweeners. You know some fun stuff. I, I I'm all for it. But if you want to take it seriously, you got to hit a half an hour serves. You got to hit an hour serves. You got to hit. You got to do the boring work that's going to pay off in the end.
2: Yeah, I think that's the best summation of old school, and uh, exactly what I meant. Because I think a lot of people think old school. Oh, some gruff old guy yelling for no reason, berating kids, not letting them drink water for four hours because they're not tough enough. You know, that's the sort of negative connotation but i think what you're talking about the hard work embracing putting adversity in front of them so they can overcome it and learn to do that and and because guess what the rest of life the rest of tennis for sure at this level and the rest of life is going to be overcoming adversity yeah and all those things
0: and and absolutely and one of the things i like to repeat to the you know the kids that kind of struggle with that is look Improvement and success—it's an internal thing. It's not an external thing. If you, if you're looking at the circumstances to be perfect for you to succeed, then you may as well change topics because it's it's not going to happen. It's an internal thing. It's, it's what can I do in these circumstances to keep succeeding and keep you know growing faster than my peers. Um, if you if you look to the external, it's out of your control, and then it, you you know, it's a recipe for stagnation.
2: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, kids these days is a a phrase a lot of people utter. I mean, you work with a lot of kids, so I'm sure that goes through your head a lot. Um, But I guess the hard work comes from the coach's side. And when I met you for the first time, it was uh, not too long ago, out at your place, your old place, and uh, you and your dad, both out there on the court, sweating, working hard, um, are you guys getting after it out there every day w- with them?
0: Yeah, we're out there every day. You know, we, we obviously take turns. We, we switch around a little bit because we have a few different programs that are going on. So we try to pace ourselves a bit, but we're out there, you know, we're, we're in the, in the thick of it. And, uh, you know, we, we do the best we can for the, for the kids, for the players. But reality is, you know, understanding what, what needs to happen is, is one thing Um being able to do it and having the discipline to do it over and over and over that's a different discussion altogether and and I think that's where you know the heart of a champion comes in is is this a hobby for you is this fun for you or is is this a business is this seriousness where we're going to go out there and we're going to work on this shot over and over and over with intensity over and over and over just because you know that when you get this 10% better it's going to mean that you're going to win 20% more matches um so that's what we, I feel like our academy is you know, we're good on on, you know, repetition, doing a whole bunch of stuff and all that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, any academy has that. Yeah, That's that's just stock standard. You're going to hit a lot of balls. You're going to hit a lot of groundies, a lot of serves, play a lot of points, have some fun, you know, blah, blah. It, 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 that's all the same. I think what we really aspire to do and de- my dad and I and Jenny and I, my wife, we talk about this all the time is we try to create a culture of a professional mindset. And it's really easy for some kids to pick up on. It's really tough for others. Um, But I think that if you have to drag a player along to success, it's going to be short-lived. You need that player to understand and embrace how to attain that success. And so I feel like we're more of a a culture-setting academy uh, rather than than a you know a game style or or, or something along those lines uh, that that that's our number one emphasis is how do we set a a mindset a culture of professionalism and and success
2: I like that I like that that makes me more even more excited that Dent Tennis Academy is in DFW because does this world need a whole bunch more tennis players that can hit a bunch of shots but that are terrible people and have no future or Are some of these kids not going to play tennis after college, but they're going to be outstanding human beings. They're going to be successful in whatever endeavor. And certainly, obviously, you're a tennis academy, so you want them to achieve the most success that they can in tennis. But there's so much more, as obviously you said earlier you were 25, I think. Um, And you're already past your tennis career, so you're successful in something else. And so it sounds like you're setting these kids up for success even off the court.
0: I mean that would be great. That'd be awesome. Like I said, if if they see what works in tennis, I mean, I, there's so many times when I'm coaching where I relate life to tennis, tennis to life, and uh, you, you know, just so many different things to the tennis court apply. Um, it's just is at the end of the day, it is what it is. I mean, you can't be successful without hard work, doing it a lot and and making sure that you're doing it wisely, you're doing it efficiently. I don't I don't you know, it's it's that outliers book. You you know, there, there's only so many ways a person can be truly successful. You can be temporarily successful by being lucky, but that's not going to last. That's not meaningful. So you got to make sure you're calculated and you are a beast. You know, you don't take no for an answer once you have a setting, once you have a course, there's nothing that's going to stop you. Um, unless you decide that enough's enough and I want to pursue a different direction. And that's fine. That That's that's totally fine. But right. just make sure it's calculated and you've given it everything.
2: What's your uh, age group? Anything?
0: Age, age group is basically, I think, everything. I mean, my son uh, plays in there and he's six years old. You know, he was five when he was starting. So he, he just loves it. So so that's my youngest one, I think, is, is uh, Liam. And uh, our oldest one, I don't know. 2023 20, 24 maybe me 37 or 25 sorry <laughs> the secrets out the secrets
2: out well so so basically what you're saying is comprehensive so anybody that is willing to get after it wants to achieve
0: age is not a requirement for us it's more of uh, ambition if that makes sense so you know obviously the younger kids are, are going after you know their UTR now that's that's the new thing in town um you going for college scholarships we get the rare one that wants to try professional tennis and then we get the older ones that have either gone through college or are, you know, trying to bypass college and, and go professional. I, you know what, my motivation, I just love improvement to be honest with you. You know, my, my, one of the the most fun things is when I get a text or a call, um, or, or, you know, something like that from one of my players and we've been working on something really hard and, uh, they, they, you know, succeeded in a match and they've just won, whether it's a local, you know, champ tournament and, and the, the player has just super champed, you know, that's a big deal here in Texas, or whether somebody's done really well in a, in a professional tournament. I just love improvement. You know, me and dad, we, we love just seeing the kids improve a lot.
2: I think you said something earlier to go along with that, is that it's not just seeing the improvement, but seeing them realize, oh, those things that you told me will help me improve, they work and I can do that and now once once you give them a little taste of that now now they're trouble
0: yeah no it's true and, and you know, I was talking about this earlier with one of my uh one of my students and it it's interesting how human beings work you know human beings are very reluctant to change and do things outside of their comfort zone until there's pain and until they find uh failure and unsuccess if that makes sense and uh, so that's kind of the thing that, that we, we, we embrace and we accept that. that. That's just a reality of the job. It's just like, look, this is what I want you to work on. If you don't want to do it right now in the matches, we get it. That's fine. But build this skill because you're going to need it um, when you hit this level. You know, and, and so when and, and that's the way it goes, you know, they have to see it for themselves. If they don't see it for themselves, they're not going to do it with um, reckless abandon. They're going to always be reserved in, in, in working on the shot or hitting the shot or playing the style or going for that much. So, you know, we just try and prime the pump a little bit. And right. then as soon as they see that that's needed, then boom, they've already got the skill for it. They just need to make the decision to do it.
2: Right. I I think that idea of dragging them along, not being the way is exactly, you know, illustrates that. So this sort of philosophy, is that what you came up as a youth, as a kid with your dad? I mean, he coached you, I would assume, Yeah. early on at least or all the way through? He
0: coached me until I was 17 and then I needed a little breather. He needed a little breather from me, probably more importantly. (laughs) And uh, then we reunited um, when I was 21 or two, something like that.
2: Okay, but a lot of these philosophies have carried through from him kind of bringing you up and, and finding out what works. And
0: I think it's what you said, though. I, I, I think that uh, the philosophies evolve in the sense of being able to word them differently, but really it's old school. Right. I mean, w- what changes? It's, it's hard work. It's doing a lot of it, and, and it's doing it smartly. It's working on things that matter. So really it's it's an old school philosophy, but learning how to translate that uh, changes uh, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, but but the the principle is still the same.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I always make the comparison when they talk about millennials. That you hear that word, I don't even know what age group that is. But you hear apparently
0: about... I'm a millennial, so be careful. What? Yeah, apparently that's right. the a millennial has like a twenty year span. So I, I I'm in there.
2: Well, I remember one point in time, the predictions in business were that the the landscape of business was going to have to change for millennials. You know what I mean? You know They were going to have to change office hours and have beanbags around and all this stuff. And I thought to myself, I don't know what idiot is making a ton of money selling a book that says that nonsense. But the bottom line is, if there's sharks in the water, the sharks are going to eat first. That's all there is to it. And I, I would imagine just this old school, you're talking about rewording it, it's still the same. The old school, the work, the efficiency, doing the right things, doing them the right way and working hard is always going to get it done.
0: That's right. I can't say it any better than that.
2: Well, that's why I have the podcast, sir. <laughs> that's why I have the podcast. Well, look, so Dent Tennis Academy in beautiful Keller, Texas. And it is beautiful. I'm assuming Australia must be beautiful as well if your dad thinks it looks similar. Uh, any age, any ability, as long as you're willing to do those things, right? Yeah. So you'll take a beginner. Yeah. You'll take an elite player, but they all got to buy in. And let me tell you something, folks. I don't think this is the kind of place where they just slap the last name of a couple pro players on the academy and hope to roll in some kids and just roll out balls. Uh, like I said, I snuck up unannounced on the place. saw the guy out there, saw his dad out there, just getting after it. And not only that, Mr. Dent has dragged two of his players to the studio. Now – I'm not allowing them to listen to this podcast. You know, the kind of language I use on this podcast normally, but, um, these guys, the dents are all in and, and I've seen it in action. And so, uh, it's definitely a real deal, which is a, one of the biggest reasons I'm excited that there's another, uh, a place training kids, not just in tennis, but in life here in DFW. I think you're going to be a huge benefit to the area, both tennis wise and just community wise. And so, uh, if nobody else has told you, which I'm sure they have because it's Texas, but welcome to Texas.
0: Well, we appreciate it, and and that's our aspiration. You know, we, we do tennis. That's what we do, but uh, we really aspire uh, to be community-oriented. You know, we we want to do meaningful things through tennis.
2: Right, right. Well, good. Well, we're glad you're in Texas. Uh, so far, you're doing a great job. Please, please don't have a scandal right after this thing comes out. Uh, then I'll look like the idiot that everybody knows I am. But no, I appreciate you coming back to the studio. And uh, more than happy to, to plug your academy. And uh, we'd love to have you back anytime.
0: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks.